0: Parents, why do you tell your kids after you give them something, what are you supposed to say? Well, first of all, what, do you, what, do you, what are they supposed to say? Thank you. Why? Why do you, why do you tell them that? Why do you want them to do that? What are you trying to do? Encourage gratitude. Yeah, and see, you went right to it. See, I appreciate that because, you know, at first I was thinking, well, you don't want them to have good manners, but... It's more than just good manners, right? Like, you want them to actually be thankful, you know, because sometimes, you know, and, and we, we, still just, we still do this, but, you know, sometimes, like, what are you supposed to say? And they're like, thank you. And while that works, that's not, that's not really what you're after, right? Like, you want it to be deeper. You want it to be something where they really are grateful for what, what you've given them. You know, God wants that, too. God wants us to, to not just... Say thank you, and, and, and that's one of the things, you know, sometimes we'll talk about our lives of sanctification, living your life of faith, and we'll say, all right, now this is how you want to live your life, saying thank you to God. And it's true, we want to say thank you to God, but does the Christian life ever seem more like you're like, thank you, you know, like doing, saying the words because you're supposed to, because you're supposed to show your thanks to God, instead of having this internal gratitude or this internal change? See, God, he, he, he wants it to be more than just words. He wants it to be more than just something we do. He really, this life is meant to be something that totally transforms us. The life Jesus given, has given us, it, it starts from the inside, it starts with our heart, and it, and it changes everything about us. God has given us a life that is more than motions. The lesson we have today to bring that out is Romans chapter 9, verses 9 to 12. It says, Love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love, honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Now we have had this lesson today it comes from the letter Paul wrote to the Christians in the city of Rome. We have had a lot of lessons from the book of Romans so far during this series we've been going through. Uh, because it's, just, it's this amazing letter that Paul wrote to these Christians in the city here. Paul really lays out the gospel, teaching them, and he's encouraging them to live unified and to live boldly in the gospel. He's preparing them to be a place that he wants to launch the next phase of his ministry from. And so maybe this context is becoming fairly familiar with you if you've been here uh, for, for parts of this series. You may recall at the first part of this letter that Paul is really bringing out that all humanity has the same issue whether you were, grew up with the Ten Commandments or not. We all have this issue that God's law shows how we were meant to be and then it ends up showing how we fail to be what we we're meant to be. So we're all naturally trapped under our sin. We need to be rescued. Rescue can't happen by obeying the laws of the Torah, those Old Testament laws, because all it ends up doing is showing how we fall short. But, God in his righteousness, he's rescued the world through Jesus to create a new family, to create a new people who are connected to God through faith in Jesus. And as you progress through the letter, you get to chapter 5, to chapters 5 to 8, and this is where our first lessons during this series started coming from, was in this section, is here when, when Paul is bringing out that whatever is true of Jesus now through faith is true of you. When you were baptized into Christ, now as Jesus died on the cross, your sin died there with them. When Jesus rose again, you have been given a new life. What's true of Jesus is true of you. And this is where the bulk of our lessons from Romans have been coming from, is this section now of, of how we get to live as people who are, who are new in Christ. How we get to live as people who are no longer stuck by the law, in chapter 7 and 8, Paul really emphasizes that the law really kept showing us how we fall short. We are now people who have been given new life by the Holy Spirit. Just like the Spirit of God breathed life into Adam and Eve or into a- Adam at the beginning, the Spirit of God has breathed the life into us. We have a new life, a new ability to really live by His power with the hope of eternity and with a new life, a new ability today. This is, what we, this is the section we've been spending a lot of time in. Our lesson today actually takes place a bit after this. There's some, some transition that's happened, some, some change in topic that's happened in the letter to the Romans here. In the p- chapters that come between what we've been studying and where we are today, Paul has been talking to the people about God's promise to Israel and how they should view Israel. And that might seem like, okay... All right, so that's the section we can just skip over because we're not the nation of Israel, and after all, that's a couple thousand years removed. But there's some really beneficial stuff here because, remember, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament was God's chosen set-apart people, given that privilege to be his partners in, in shining a light to the world. Paul was really wrestling with, and many of the people in that day were wrestling with, okay, if so many people who've come from that background have, have given up, have not believed in, in, in Jesus, now what does God view of those people? Well, Paul's answer is, and God's answer through Paul, is that true Israel is not about bloodlines. True Israel is about being a child of the promise. In other words, if you are brought to faith in the promise of a Savior, if you believe in Jesus, you are Israel. Whether you come from a Jewish background or whether we're here today and you come from a Norwegian or German background, it doesn't matter. If you are a child of the promise, someone who's been brought to faith in Christ, you are true Israel, which means now we are to see ourselves today as true Israel, God's set apart people to be a light for the world. And that's a pretty significant calling. And our lesson comes in a section now in chapter 12 where God has been bringing out, where God through, da- or, uh, through Paul, excuse me, has been bringing out, excuse me, let me back it up, bringing out how we now get to live as God's people, as this set-apart nation of Israel. At the beginning of the chapter, Paul, he says, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy... To offer your bodies as living sacrifices. So think of the Old Testament. Think about how God's people had those priests who got to, to go into God's presence and they got to, to show that God was, was living there with the people and they got to partner with God. God encourages us now to see ourselves in that way as people who get to partner with God. But there's something really cool about what Paul says at the beginning of this chapter where he says, In view of God's mercy... So God's call to live as a living sacrifice doesn't come from a, okay, now this is what you need to do, say thank you. It comes through his mercy. And the word mercy, the Greek word, is actually closely related to the Hebrew word in the Old Testament that is typically translated compassion. And that word, actually the picture is of a womb. So think about how a mother has compassion for her baby, for her child, Right? God's mercy, the best, that's, that's one of the best pictures for God's compassion and mercy for us. Just like a mother has a, this, this care for her child, God has that care for his people. And so this chapter we're in is coming from a place of compassion that God has for us. As his children of the promise, this is what God wants for us. This is what God wants us to experience as he cares for us so passionately, This is what God wants us to know and how God wants us to live. And that's where we get into our lesson. This is where it's coming from. When God says, I want it to be more than motions, it's it's not him just saying, now you need to do this. It's coming from this place of compassion for us. He wants us to have a new life that's not just actions, but more than motions. Our lesson, it, it begins, love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. I put an X over the word must because it actually, it doesn't, it's not, a, it's not an imperative. It's not a command in the original language. Uh, it's really just saying love and then it's an adjective. Love sincere. Uh, it it it's probably takes the, the sense of a command, which is why they, they go with it that way. They got to saying, I want this to be this way. But the tone is a bit different in the original language where it's simply saying, this is what it's going to be like. This is what I would have it be like. Sincere love. So take that must word out of there that, that, that changes the tone a little bit. When he says love, here in this verse, he uses the word in Greek, agape, which is a word I know we've talked about it some in this series, and it's a word that if you've been around the church, you, you maybe you've heard before. Um, it's this beautiful, ultimate, self-sacrificing love, the love that is, that is best shown in Jesus, right, where he lived a life completely loving his father, completely serving him, and then loving us all the way to the point that he laid it down on a cross, willing to give everything to die for us. That is agape love. And he says, I want you to have an agape love for people, for God and for people. Have agape love that is sincere. Or more literally, and the words in this section, there's there's a ton of really cool word pictures, so we're going to break apart the pictures quite a bit. More literally, it says, the idea is of not impersonating so in other words, this love that you have, it's not an act. You're not just putting on a show. You're not just, just making people, they are not just acting like you love people. It's got to be real. Which maybe right away you can see, okay, this is where we're getting the theme from, more than motions. But also, I, I, I don't know about you, but this, this whole idea of not putting on a show when it comes to love catches me right away. Because I was, I was blessed to grow up in a, in a wonderful Christian house, so I got to see regularly what, what love looks like. And so I know how to act loving, you know? And maybe you do too. Like, I know how to act like, like, like I'm loving people to put on a good show. And I got to tell you, actually, and I've been pretty, maybe not always good at that, but, you know, many, you, you know, many of you know that uh, I spent time as an MC when I was in college, and then uh, I did TV work when I was in college. I know how to put on a show, and i tell you, and actually, even when I, it is, this even played out when I worked at Quick Trip in seminary. You could come into Quick Trip and be fully intending just to, you know, pay for your gas and maybe get a gallon of milk, and I'm going to send you home with four pizzas because I'm going to put on a show, you know, and say, hey, but don't you need some pizza? You know you need some for dinner. And then by the time you leave, I'm saying, see you next time, fully knowing you're going to come back tomorrow when I'm selling you glazers because that's how I do when I'm working there, right? And I could put on a show and win the room and do whatever, right? And you know, but you know who's not impressed with that? God. (laughs) Well, at least when it comes to living our lives of faith. Like, he was probably happy with me doing that at Quick Trip because that meant I was being a good worker and I was going all in and I was making that company some bank, right? But when it comes to living your life of faith, God is not impressed with a show. He's not impressed with you acting like you have agape love. He wants you to really... Have agape love. And then this whole section, when we look at this, you can see that, this is a, is that the desire of God is to have a full, all-in, from the core, transformative, changed life of love and living your life of faith. He wants more emotions. I mean, check out the second half of this verse, when he says, Hate what is evil. It's not just, you know, don't do bad things or avoid bad things. It, it really is just hate what's, what, what, what's evil. So I think of, uh, um, we bought this bug tent for our backyard because, you know, there's lots of mosquitoes. And we like to eat in the backyard. The bees right now, I don't know how they are here in Fort, but they just, like, swarm your food right away. So we bought this tent so we could sit out there, right? So the other day, we're sitting out there, and my little daughter Ruthie, six-year-old Ruthie, a daddy long legs, worked its way inside the tent, was climbing up the screen. And you know what her response was? Like, she just... Jumped, screamed, freaked out because there's this daddy long legs in the tent, right? Just hated it, disgusted. That's the idea with this word. It's not just avoid these things. Just be disgusted at what is evil. Or the word evil, it more literally means toil or anguish. Interestingly enough, it's really closely related to where we get our word porn from. So it's just kind of an interesting connection there. Um, but it, it's, it's, it's that which causes toil, that which causes hurt or anguish for somebody. If you see something that can cause that kind of hurt to somebody, that should disgust you. That what you say or do might cause hurt or pain to someone. Not just you shouldn't do it, but it is disgusting what is evil, what is hurtful, what causes anguish. It disgusts you, you hate it. Hate what is evil And then cling to what is good. The picture there, cling, it's a cool picture. It literally means like to be glued to. So think of what gorilla glue or whatever you like to use where you put that together and you're not pulling it off afterwards, right? This is the idea. Glued to that which is good, that which is beneficial. The things that build people up, the things that help people, be glued to that. That's what God wants. Disgusted by what hurts, glued to what is beneficial and helpful. This is a transformative change. It's more than motions. It wants us to to be disgusted by what's evil, to be glued to what's good, to be devoted to one another in brotherly love, honor one another above yourselves. The way this is in the original language is actually it's it's repetitive to really make an emphasis. It basically says, have brotherly, brotherly love for each other with family love for each other. These two words are very, very similar. So brotherly love, and then it's a bit more generalized, like family love. So think about that close love, that of a family, that close love of of, of siblings, um, at least the way it should be, not when they're, you know, like fighting with each other, but like, you know, that more of the love that shows up when it's like, don't you say that about my sister kind of love, you know, like that kind of love. And it says have brotherly love with family love. It just compounds it. And, and this is one of those, this is the, the, the word like where Philadelphia, by the way, comes from. So we think about in Greek, there's a various kinds of love. There's agape love, there's this Philadelphia love. It's a friendly love. It's this, this brotherly love. God would have us have brotherly love as family love. It's just, he compounds it. This is a big love he would have us have for each other, which He's the thing about God compounding this kind of love. I don't know, this week I was thinking about, <laughs> I was thinking about, the fact that there are people in the church that not, I'm not saying this church, I'm just saying the church as a whole, that I don't particularly like. Just be real, right? You don't always enjoy every person who's a Christian. Maybe you have some beef with somebody who's a Christian. Frustration. And yet the call that God has is to brotherly love them with a family love. It's a pretty big call. And to honor one another above yourselves. And the word honor is, is to value Jesus, just think of how much value you would put on someone who's in your family. Or you think about that child in your family and just how much you value them and you care for them. God would have you have brotherly love for one another with family love valuing them. Either above yourselves or some translations say like outdo each other in valuing each other. The the way it reads in original language, it could kind of go either way. Either way, the point is that you have this value for them where you are valuing them like above and before yourself. It's not just do nice things or try to be nice to people and put on a nice face and smile. It's to have this brotherly love, this family love, honoring them. It's more emotions. It's more than motions where he says, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. So it says never be lacking in zeal. The The idea is basically like, well, you ever been around someone who you just were really trying to get to do something, perhaps clean their room, do something else. Anyway, and I'm sure that you're going to, I see, I, 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 I could, I'm sensing maybe some faces or some elbows, like maybe you can think of someone in your family. All right, but let's think about those times where you've had something you know you need to do. And then we do that stupid thing called procrastinate. Yeah, and, and it really is stupid, right? Because we know it's just going to make it worse. Like the more we wait, like, it just gets worse. Like, it's really not smart at all to procrastinate, but we do it anyway, right? This, what he's saying is don't, don't fall into that. When it comes to God, don't be where God is like, where, you know, the Spirit's got to be like, come on, Nate, get up and do it. Clean, you know, clean up your life. Don't be where you're like, ah, I'm just going to put it off. Like, be, don't be that. Be the opposite of that. Be all in. Keep your spiritual fervor. And the word picture there is actually, it's, of, it, it's the, word, the picture of boiling up. So you think of, uh, you know, you're boiling water. Ever had it maybe where you were, weren't paying attention? I did this the other day. I went out to the backyard to do something, come back in and there's water going over the pot in the stove. Haven't done that in a while. That was the first time in a while. And, uh, but you, you know, you, you just can't even contain it, right? Because it's just boiling over the top. This is the idea. That your spirit... It's so on fire by the Lord that it's boiling over into your life. And I just can't help but go forward. This is the, it's, it's, it's the total opposite of, come on, you need to do this. It's a boiling over where it just spills over to your life. It, it is more than motions. It's where we can be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. Now, there's been several great word pictures in what Pauls wrote here so far, and we could stop and watch a video about each of them. We're not going we're not going to do that because we don't want to be here all the morning. But we are going to watch one about the word joyful. Partly because the word joyful often kind of gets interchanged with the word happy, and everybody wants to be happy, right? In America we talk about the pursuit of happiness. When you think about how God wants us to be joyful, it's important for us to stop and recognize what that joy really is and how that joy really works.
1: Being in a good mood is really great. And most languages have lots of words to describe the experience, like happy, cheerful, joyful, and so on. The same goes for the languages of the Bible. In ancient biblical Hebrew, there's a variety of words like simcha, sason, or gil. In the Greek New Testament, there's kara, euphrosune, or agaliasis. Each word has its own unique nuance, but they all basically refer to the feeling of joy and happiness. Now, what makes these biblical joy words interesting is noticing the kinds of things that bring happiness and also seeing how joy is a key theme that runs through the whole story of the Bible. Let's start with sources of joy. On page one of the Bible, God says that this world is very good. And so naturally, people find joy in beautiful and good things of life, like growing flocks or an abundant harvest on the hills. The poet of Psalm 104 says a good bottle of wine is God's gift to bring joy to people's hearts. People find joy at a wedding or in their children. There's even a Hebrew proverb that compares the joy that perfume brings to your nose with the joy a good friend brings to your heart. However, human history isn't just a joy fest. The biblical story shows how we live in a world that's been corrupted by our own selfishness. It's marked by death and loss and this is where biblical faith offers a unique perspective on joy. It's an An attitude God's people adopt not because of happy circumstances but because of their hope in God's love and promise. So when the Israelites were suffering from slavery in Egypt, God raised up Moses to lead them into freedom and the first thing the Israelites did was sing for joy. Even though they were in the middle of a desert, they were vulnerable, the promised land was still far away, they rejoiced anyway. Later biblical poets looked back on this story and they remembered how the Lord caused his people to leave with joy, his chosen ones with shouts of joy. This joy in the wilderness this was a defining moment a way of saying that the joy of God's people is not determined by their struggles but by their future destiny. This theme appears later in Israel's story when Israel suffered under the oppression of foreign empires. The prophet Isaiah looked for a day when God would raise up a new deliverer like Moses. That's when those redeemed by the Lord will return to Zion with glad shouts with eternal joy crowning their heads happiness and joy will overtake them. And while the Israelites wait they chose joy to anticipate their future redemption. This is why it's significant that when Jesus of Nazareth was born, it was announced as good news that brings great joy. We're told that Jesus himself rejoiced and gave thanks to God his Father when he began to announce the kingdom of God. He even taught his followers the same joy in the wilderness saying, when people reject you or persecute you for following me, rejoice. Be very glad because your reward is great in heaven. After his death and resurrection, Jesus commissioned his followers to go out and announce the good news that he was the risen king of the world. And as they did so, the early Christian communities were known for being full of joy, even when they were persecuted. Like when the Apostle Paul was sitting in a dirty Roman prison, he could say that he's chosen joy, even if he gets executed. He called this the joy of faith or joy in the Lord. He believed it was the gift of God's Spirit, a sign that Jesus' presence is with you, inspiring hope in the midst of hardship and when you believe that Jesus' love has overcome death itself joy becomes reasonable in the darkest of circumstances now this doesn't mean that you ignore or suppress your sorrow that's not healthy or necessary Paul often expressed his grief about missing loved ones or losing friends or his own freedom he called it being full of sorrow and yet rejoicing as he acknowledged his pain he also made a choice to trust Jesus that his loss wouldn't be the final word. This is very different from the trite advice to turn that frown upside down. Christian joy is a profound decision of faith and hope in the power of Jesus's own life and love. And that's what biblical joy is all about.
0: So biblical joy is directly connected to expecting God to come through on his promises. And that's part of why when Jesus was born, there was so much joy because God came through with that promise to send a Savior. Biblical joy is connected to this, this expectation or anticipation that God can do, that he has done, and he will do what he says he will do, which is, which is fantastic when we think about this phrase, be joyful in hope, because the word hope in Scripture always also refers to expectation or uh, anticipation. That's why joy and hope go together. When you're hoping for something, it's not just, oh, I hope this will happen. It's that you are anticipating something good is going to happen. You have this expectation. It's kind of like, uh, I used this picture in uh, the, one of the messages from, from Cottage Grove a couple of weeks ago. Beginning of, of August, Ruthie turned six, we had her birthday, and then there was, of course, there was the gift opening, right? And the gift opening, when they've got the presents, there is this, this expectation that there's something good in that box, that there is an anticipation. You don't necessarily know exactly what it's going to be, and that's the same way with us with God. Sometimes we have some details, but other times we don't necessarily know. Like, when God says he's going to work this all for good, we don't know exactly how, but we have an anticipation that he will, an expectation that he will. This is what biblical hope is. It's an expectation. It's an anticipation, just like sitting there with a gift. How is God? Something good's in it. I don't necessarily know what it is, but it's good. And so we can be joyful, have this this spirit of of, of joy and contentment because we know if God has come through on that promise to send Jesus and that he died and he rose, and if God is is, is with us and Jesus is with us by the power of the the Spirit, we can have joy fully expecting that he will return and that every promise of his will come true. How do you have, have Christian joy? It's not by just putting on a smiley face and being an optimist. Those things can be fine and helpful at times, but it's living and putting in your mind what are you expecting God to do? What has God promised that you're anticipating that He will come through with? What has God said to you that you are expecting Him to fully and completely do? When you live with expectation, joy and expectation go together. God would have us do more than the motions, more than just have it fill in and, and be some smiley face you put on, but he would have us have real joy with real expectation. When we do that, it also then helps us to be patient in affliction. Uh, and the word affliction, it, it means like to be pressed. Think of like a pressing grapes to make wine. Here he talks about remaining under it or enduring under it. And so think about maybe if you're at the gym and you're under the weights and you've got that weight there and you're not just giving up, you're not saying, I can't do it, but you're under it. You will be able to remain under however the world is pressing down on you. However the world is is putting that pressure on you, he calls us to remain under that. To stay under whatever it is, that pressure that's coming underneath us. Which is, that's why I'm thankful that this verse starts with talking about being joyful in hope. Because that helps us then to remain under it. When you have that expectation that God's going to do what he says he's going to do, that empowers you to remain under But then also it bookends with this final phrase, which also helps us to remain under. This final phrase where it says, be faithful in prayer. Or more literally, in prayer, continuing. Continuing on in prayer. As you are enduring under, constantly be looking away from yourself to God. And be looking to him and for his strength and for his direction. This uh, side graphic here, it's... uh, I was really struggling to try to find the right picture. This is the infinity symbol, by the way, in case you didn't know how it just keeps going on and on. And those are little emoji faces. So all your feelings, whatever it is that's going on, just keep bringing more of them and more of them and more of them to God. Don't ever stop laying it before the Lord. Again and again, constantly, as you are remaining under the pressure, keep giving them constantly to God. I love that our lesson wraps up here because... Wraps up talking about prayer because I don't know about you, but when I look at this lesson and I'm like, man, agape love like Jesus that isn't a show but is real, brotherly loving people, like family, honoring them above myself, valuing them above myself, having joy, real joy, all this, not ever be lacking in zeal but being all in. I look at this and I'm like, I can't do that. You know, I look at it, I'm just like, I can, I, am, I can put on a good show. Like, I can put on, make, I can act pretty loving sometimes, and I can act like I'm, you know, happy. And, but I can't do all this, and I certainly can't change my heart. Which is why I love that this here turns us back then to prayer. Because prayer is turning away from ourselves and turning to the God who can change us. And that's the thing, is it, God, he doesn't want us to just experience what we can do. If, it, the, 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 gospel, the Christian life is not just about behavior modification. If it was, that would just be a human thing, change your behavior, act nicer. Okay, that's not what it is. The, human, the, 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 the Christian life is about the fact that Jesus died and rose again to give you a new life, to make you completely new, and someday you can live in the fullness of that. But even now, you can look to that God and know that he has made you new in him that we can turn to him and ask him to do what we can't do. That we can do what David did in that prayer. That prayer where he said, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. When we look at a section like this, we're like, whoa, that is beyond me. I can't change my heart. I can try to change my actions, but I can't change my heart. We can turn to God and say, God, I can't change my heart, but you created me a clean heart. Give me a new heart. Do something that I can't do. That's what God wants us to do. He wants us to look to him to do something in us that we can't do for ourselves. He wants us to experience the divine, the new life that Jesus has won. Look to him and just lay before him. God, create in me a clean heart. I can't do it transform me from the inside out. And when we look to God, God always points us back to the love that he has for his son and that he has for us and that his son has for us. As we say, create in me a clean heart, again and again, God would turn us to Jesus and turn us to the fact that he has done all these things, loved us in this way, had that brotherly love that we struggle to have. He is honored us and valued us above himself he was all in with his life being joyful throughout it Jesus has done it he takes us back to that love and when you go back to that love when you go back to what Jesus has done and when the Holy Spirit works through that good news of that love it does transform us It gives us hope that someday when this life comes to an end we're gonna leave behind that sinfulness and that brokenness there is a day keep this in mind there is a day where you will Love people with an agape love. You will. There is a day where you will have completely the brotherly love, family love that you're supposed to have. There is a day. And if there is a day in eternity where that will happen, and if that same God is already working in you now by the power of the Spirit, don't underestimate how God can make you new today. When you go back again and again to that love, knowing that you're completely loved, that Jesus has completely taken your sin on himself, paid the price for it on the cross, rose again to give you a new life, when you go back to the fact that God completely loves you, that his Holy Spirit is now working in you, it can transform you today so that you're not just doing new actions, but that you really are a new person living with the hope of eternity and with the power of Christ's new life today. God wants to give you a Christian life that it's not just you coming up with the actions but where he is doing something truly divine inside of you, expecting what he's going to do in the future, living in anticipation of
1: what he can do now, living more than motions.